Hey, welcome back to another episode of Parker's Pensies. This is a podcast where we explore thoughts in philosophy, theology, nature, and life. I love thinking about cool stuff. So come think with me. Today is another special episode. Every episode special. I always say it, but they're all special to me, uh, and they will be to you as well. This one is going to be fun. We're talking the philosophy of WandaVision, and I have with me the cast, the hosts, the the whole free will show. I got, I got them all. I got both hosts of the free will show. And uh, we're going to talk about the philosophy of WandaVision. We started because I wanted to talk about the free will aspect that's going on uh, or lack of lack thereof in WandaVision. Uh, but they got in some more philosophy stuff. So we're going to talk more. Um, without further ado, let me just bring them in. Taylor and Matt. Hey guys, thanks so much for coming on the podcast again, both of you. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Yeah, for sure. Glad to be here. Yeah, man. So, uh, so I had this idea because spoilers for people who haven't seen WandaVision, uh, Wanda like takes over this town and she casts everyone in different roles and she's like manipulating them into these roles. And I thought, man, this would be a great conversation to have with the free will, uh, show guys. And you guys have both been on my podcast uh, individually. And then Taylor told me, um, Matt hasn't seen it. And so we, we, <laughs> you know, Taylor asked Matt and then Matt goes out and binges the whole thing in like, can, how how many episodes do you watch at a time there, Matt? Um, I don't remember. It was a Saturday morning, and I think we watched four or five episodes that morning. Oh, yeah. And it was then, halfway through the season already. Yeah. 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 And then as episodes were released, we watched them as soon as possible. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. So for the for the for the folks back home, like he put in a lot of work here. You know, he he made his kids watch <laughs> this. Like we all had. To, <laughs> this is all for you guys. It wasn't that much work to get my kids to watch TV. They're like Marvel TV. Yeah, sign us up. You're leaving out the really important part that uh, Parker. After a couple episodes, you were not very high on the show, and I had to convince you to That's keep watching true. it. That's, That's probably harder than Matt's job. That's true, man. Taylor Taylor really is the the mastermind behind this whole thing, I guess. Uh, yeah, episode one and two are rough for me. Taylor tried to convince me that they're good. I, I still don't think they're very good. Uh, <laughs> I, I think I know what was happening, but real quick, Matt, what did you think of the first two episodes? Well, I had read some interactions on Facebook with, with you guys, actually, <laughs> and some other people that were complaining about the first two episodes. So I had really low expectations going in, and I was pleasantly surprised. Okay. Uh I I grew up watching those old TV shows like Bewitched, mm-hmm. um, and so I thought that they were actually kind of funny. <laughs> but it was definitely not probably what you were expecting if you were watching a Marvel show. That's true. Taylor, I, did, you, you I didn't that. find the humor that funny, but I thought it was kind of it was kind of cringe. <laughs> yeah, so I like. I thought they were kind of making fun of Matt and his sense of humor. <laughs> yeah, I, that's what I was about to say. Maybe that says something more about my sense of humor than anything else. Yeah, could be. Well, that's what I was looking for. I thought that they were going to be totally just roasting these old shows, but I, I didn't catch a lot of that either. I just felt like um, they were just bad jokes, and it, was, <laughs> it, it ended up working. By the third one, the fourth one, it started. It started playing, and then I started getting curious about. You know, I've had these guys on talking about free will, manipulation, all this stuff. Like, what what's going on here? Can uh, can they be responsible? Like, if if in the show, the show within the show, right? So it's like 
um, it, the, the town's called Westview, right? Mm-hmm. So within Westview, if Wanda had like one of her neighbors commit a crime, could they be morally responsible? And intuitively, I'm like, I don't think so. But I wanted to ask the the free will guys, like, what? what how do we analyze this? What do we think? Um, yeah, just jump off on that. I, I, Taylor and I were talking about this earlier. I think one of the things that you have to be clear about is what you mean by manipulation. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you can think about it like a scale with rational persuasion on one end, um, where you're giving somebody good logical reasons to do something or believe something. And then on the other thing, or the other end, things like coercion, mm-hmm. um, where coercion seems to work against your will. Um, manipulation falls somewhere in the middle mm-hmm. where it's not going against your will. It's actually changing your will from the inside. Hmm. Um, so Robert Kane has written a lot about free will. He talks about this distinction between manipulation and coercion. Um, and it's not clear that the people of Westview are, what are they manipulated or are they coerced? Because in some of the scenes, um, it seems like they might actually be a kind of coercion from the inside. Hmm. Yeah, it seems like they're acting against their will, which is why when Vision kind of lets the real character out, they'll they they show that they're being like, I don't know, they feel like a puppet or something like that. They're not really yeah. doing what they want. So their their will is being like overridden, and they're being yeah, it's like they're they're being suppressed. Their true identity is being suppressed. I think they probably even have different names, right? Didn't they say like my name's Sarah or something? Yeah. So so you guys would say that's that's coercion, and coercion is a stronger thing than manipulation would be. Yeah, in most cases, if you think about uh, the, like a typical case of coercion where somebody puts a gun up to your head and like, give me all your money, or if you're working at the bank, we don't we don't hold bank tellers responsible for giving away the bank's money to a gunman. Um, it's kind of excused in that yeah. in that sense. So I, you know, I'm I'm not going to blame somebody or hold them responsible if they're being coerced. Okay, so how about if um if that Bank robber comes in and uh, the guy, whatever. Uh, I'm, I'm trying to think of a good case here. How about if that bank robber, instead of going in with a gun, um, says like, I have your kid hostage. And if you don't uh, delete a bunch of the, this money out of this account and then slip it to me out the back door, then I'm going to kill your kid or something terrible. Um, is is that coercion or is that manipulation? And do we hold the, the teller responsible in that case? <laughs> Seems like ahead, coer- yeah, it, se- it seems like coercion to me. Okay. It's something external to your will making one option way more attractive than it would have been initially. So, like, you wouldn't want to give the money away, but when the the alternative to that is your kid getting hurt or, or killed, then now the option of giving the money away looks pretty good in by comparison. So, maybe it's worth having like a I don't know clean case of manipulation to contrast that yeah, with. Let's do it. My favorite case is from uh, someone who was Matt's advisor, my advisor for my master's, Al Mealy. It's the case of Anne and Beth. So Anne and Beth are both academics. I guess they're both philosophers. Um, Anne is incredibly industrious. She works, I don't know, 80 hours a week. She's constantly cranking out publications. She's a great teacher, all that. Um, Beth 
is a good teacher. She does some research, but she has a lot of hobbies. She spends her time on other things besides her work. But their dean wants Beth to be more like Anne. And so what he does is he hires a team of neuroscientists and psychologists to go and tinker with Beth's brain uh, while she's asleep without her knowing. And so the result is they take basically the uh, psychological profile of Anne and copy that and paste it in Beth. So the next morning, Beth has no idea what's happened, but she wakes up really wanting to go to work, really wanting to spend extra time at work. And, you know, she'll stay, she'll stay as later than she normally would thanks to her new psychological profile. Now, when she does this activity, like staying late at work to review an extra paper or something like that, um, she's doing it willingly, but it's because her will has been affected by the neuroscientists and psychologists who've tinkered with her. So that's a case where she's been manipulated covertly um, to have a new kind of character or value profile. Okay. Okay. So uh, there's this distinction that I picked up. I think, yeah, this is from Guillaume Bignon, and he he talks about uh, he 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 parses manipulation as. Uh, influencing manipulation and overriding manipulation. I don't know if this is original Tim. Have you guys ever heard this before? Maybe it's not original Tim. I think it's tracking what people have been saying in the literature, but I don't, he might've made up those terms. Okay. Given, given those names to it. Yeah. So, I, so, let's, so yeah. I've been thinking about, I watched that episode with, with Guillaume and I think what, what it might track is actually the way manipulation is used in different fields of study. Hmm. So uh, in the free will literature, we talk about manipulation in a, in a, in a way and also in the ethics manipulation in in the ethics literature, they talk about manipulation in a slightly different way. So, um, like in bioethics and applied ethics, we there, there's a lot of literature about manipulation, and I think it actually might track with what what Guillaume's talking about um, with whether the manipulation like will guarantee the behavior, or if it's just kind of like a, a nudge or. Mm-hmm some kind of influence that's, you know, less than a guarantee. Yeah. So I, I, that sounds great. So like uh, the, the influencing manipulation might track with like the ethics view mm-hmm. where you're, you're, you are coerced. Um, it's so hard. All these, all the, all the <laughs> terms are so loaded, but it's like, that's the, uh, the teller being uh, blackmailed or, you know, a threatening note. And you're, you are still going through the victim's mind. You're still like presenting a reason to them, but it's not, yeah, uh, it's an argument. It's like a force of threat or or something like that. Whereas the overriding manipulation is what I think of with like, um, yeah, Taylor, the case you brought up from Mealy or the uh, evil scientist uh, putting a chip in your brain. Does does that make sense? Does that sound right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, I think even in the in the applied ethics literature and in the literature on nudges, it need not be a threat, a coercive threat that counts as the manipulation. It could Mm -hmm. even be something as simple as um, an influence from advertising or something like that. Okay. But what's interesting is in the free will literature, people usually set those cases aside and they do the, Mm -hmm. they talk about the overriding covert cases of manipulation. Yeah. Yeah. Like the Ann Beth case. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, so we got a little bit better grasp on manipulation right now. So just again, to, to go back to WandaVision, co- coercion to me, I don't know, like the technical, this is the first time I'm kind of hearing that from you guys. It seems like they were, they had like over overriding manipulation going on, but, but you guys would, would you guys still hold to coercion instead that they're being coerced and not overridden manipulation kind of stuff? At least a kind of coercion. 
Yeah. Okay. It's hard to tell what the threat is. I'd say it's kind of in between overriding manipulation and coercion because, um, yeah, it, it's something internal to them, but it's more like they're not even acting. It's more mm. like Wanda's acting through them or something. One one thing that I've thought about is the we're going to bring in Harry Potter here. So the the curse that the wizards have in Harry Potter, wizards and witches, where they can um, take over somebody else's body. I forget what it's called. I remember. Um, and they can act. So Harry does this to one of the goblins in the bank. You guys, Harry Potter fans? Yeah, I remember that. I, I wasn't mean, allowed and, to read it growing up. I wasn't either. <laughs> I wasn't either. It wasn't until I was a man. Yeah. Is Imperius? Is that the name of it? I don't remember I, him I taking remember. over. Oh, that, yeah, 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 yeah. The, the name it. of it's not important. The, the important part is you cast this curse on somebody else and you control them like a puppet. Mm. And to me, it seems like this is what Wand, like what, what Taylor said, this is what Wanda's doing. She's somehow powerful enough to control all the people in this town. Um, and they're kind of like suppressed and there's still kind of some consciousness going on about. Yeah. So, uh, I want to get into more of of the philosophy as well, but just, just a thought that I had after watching it, like Wanda is incredibly dangerous. Like that, they just let her go. She just held a whole town captive, like worse than, uh, Worse than if you kidnap someone because you actually like, took over their body and stuff for I don't know how long. It, I don't know what the, the actual span of time was. Did they say that in the show, this, the span of time that she held them? I think you could put it together, but I didn't calculate it. Yeah, because yeah, everything was all fast and stuff. Yeah. But like she she should should she go to jail? Like, what do we do with Wanda after that? <laughs> Yeah. Who's gonna capture her? <laughs> That's true. But like I don't I just don't know how you could be like, uh yeah, she's an Avenger again. She's a hero. Let's all clap for Wanda. And the whole town would be like, What? No, we had her nightmares for like three months or whatever. Like mm-hmm. she's a terrible person. Part part of this is about grief. Yeah. So yeah. is Wanda trauma. even responsible for Ooh. what she's done because she's undergone such tremendous trauma? Okay. Well, and like, I guess um, she, she said she didn't remember how it happened, mm-hmm. but was, I can't remember. Was that a suppressed memory or was that just like, she kind of sneezed it out. She sneezed out the whole town kind of thing. Does that make sense? <laughs> what I'm, does that yes. just make sense? It does. <laughs> yeah. Yes. I, do I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know if it's clear given the information that we have um, at some points, like I'm like, Oh no, Wanda's not responsible either because it's almost, she, she, had such psychological trauma that she just went crazy for a little while. And then she like realized what's going on and she's got a town under her control. Um, So I don't know. Yeah. It kind of depends on the details. If, if we were to be able to get more details, whether or not what's going on, what exactly is going on. Yeah. She, she like realized at the end and it seemed like she still didn't want to let them go though. Did you guys catch that? Or did you feel like there was more to it than that? It seemed like they were trying to give her a choice between uh, her kids, these kids that oh, she's yeah. created in the in the world, and uh, yeah, letting everybody go. Yeah. So she, yeah, she created like this little pocket universe. And okay, here's something too. Maybe I just didn't pay attention enough, but she had um, Agatha like trapped in the in. She turned her her world into a hex or a a, um, a, a ruin, the, right? The so, ruins, yeah. Yeah. No, it's her ruins. And then so she got Agatha trapped in there. But then like everything went away. So did that 
where where's Agatha at? It seems like from the what we're given that Agatha's trapped in the hex con- like continually. She goes back to her character of the nosy neighbor, right? Mm-hmm. Well, I don't I don't know because does that does the hex shrink down just to that neighbor's house? Uh, you know what I mean? Because like the rest of it's all gone. I guess Wanda's powerful enough to where she could she could uh, make Wanda or not Wanda Agatha continue to be the nosy neighbor even in the absence of the hex. So maybe Westview just goes back to normal and you got this really weird nosy neighbor that lives there and can't leave. <laughs> yeah. So, it, so it's the, like the hex or whatever is limited just to Agatha. Mm-hmm. Taylor, do you think that's right? Is that, is that what it sounds like? I think Disney would want us to say, you'll have to pay for the next uh, Disney <laughs> Marvel <laughs> movie. <laughs> I'm not sure. That sounds yeah. right though. Okay. Okay. So, so maybe I think, I think Matt, what you were saying about Wanda and her grief is kind of what Disney wants us to think too. Like, Oh, no one's really at fault here. It's kind of just Agatha, even though it definitely wasn't Agatha. It was definitely like Wanda, even if she did like sneeze it out on accident. Um, I thought, I thought another interesting thing. So, so if she didn't start it on purpose, um, yeah, maybe she was crazy or maybe it's because her powers are so great and she didn't have control over them. But once they were in motion and she realized it, like if she didn't act right away to get rid of them, is it, is she then culpable? Like as soon as she says like, oh, I, I recognize this is wrong, but I'm going to keep doing it. Uh, is, is it a clear cut case that we can go now, you know, now you're responsible or what do we make of that? Yeah, that's a good question. I th- well, there, or go ahead. I, I think there's still a question about how whether she could be responsible for the the sneezing out of the the hex. Yeah, and it seems like not, but okay. she could be responsible for letting it stay in place. Although I guess we're led to believe that uh, later in the season, once she's aware of what's gone on, it's a very hard choice for her, and so it might be it, she might be exculpated given that she'd have to choose between like vision her kids and you know the town yeah typically there's there's two main uh conditions for responsibility in in the literature one of them is about control and the other one is about knowledge or belief and the once she gains knowledge about what she's done that's only part of it right and so i think to what taylor was bringing up is the control part if you've got like such overwhelming psychological reasons like with her family that she's created that are keeping her from, from stopping the hex. Maybe she doesn't have the right kind of control because there's are, there are some cases that people in the literature that people think ex exculpate. Is that the right word? Mm-hmm. Like, I think so. Get people off of the blame um, because it's such a hard choice. Like when you have to make a, ch- a choice between two, what seem like really bad options to the person who's making the choice. Yeah. Yeah. I did not expect this to happen. You guys are like defending Wanda and now you're changing, you're changing my mind. That's crazy. I didn't see it. I didn't see it this way at all. I was like, dude, someone's going to put a bullet in Wanda because she's crazy dangerous. But I'm still kind of thinking that because I'm, maybe I'm just like a sicko. I need, maybe I need some more sanctification. But for some people who aren't responsible, sometimes we still need to quarantine either ourselves from them or them from society. Right. And that yeah, I guess that's the a, question is, is that possible with Wanda to? Oh, you know, yeah. Well, to imagine quarantine her. Yeah. Uh, imagine it is. That's that's a tricky one because that's like um, it's like punishing someone without like dessert. Right. It's like she didn't deserve it. It's just like it's 
like a utilitarian principle or something like we society would be better if she was locked up and that's probably not great either so i don't know what to do with wanda like say we can say like one of the the avengers can figure it out um i know like batman in in the dc universe had like a back door on everyone he had like he knew how to take down all the rest of the justice league and i i kind of feel like tony stark would have that in place you know he had like (laughs) The Hulk smasher, the Hulk buster, or whatever. Like he probably had like the Wanda buster or something. Someone's gonna find the notes and they can figure out how to take her down. What do you like? What do you guys think should happen with Wanda? Like, just you guys have wrecked my mind about the dessert and stuff. Just what do you guys think though? Do you think she deserves to be punished? Do you think she should go to jail even if she is uh, innocent or, or you know, isn't rightly punished? What, what do you guys think? I want to hear from both of you. Well, as far as practical, my I've been watching The Flash with my son, and they've got special little compartments in yeah. their universe that take away people's powers. So we'd have to get The Flash to be able to get Wanda into one of those little compartments. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> nice. Well, they don't I, They don't even have bathrooms in those compartments. Here's I know. Your, like, I don't, never... don't think too much about it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's great. So, so would, like... Matt, would you, if you could, stick the flash on or whatever, like, would you put her in, in one of those chambers? Uh, yeah, that's a good question. I don't know. <laughs> I'm going <laughs> to cough out. <It's, laughs> it seems to me like she's not culpable for what she's done, and so we shouldn't punish her. Um, and I, it also seems like at the end of the series that she's no longer a threat. If you were worried about that, I would say yes, use the flash or whatever to quarantine her. But I would say you can't just do that. We'd have to give her therapy to help her through, you know, what gave rise to this uh, problem in the first place. Yeah. So for me, like, I, I'm just realizing now that I'm like the villain character. I'm like the old, I'm like the old army guy who's like, no, we can't risk it. There's too many lives at stake. We got to get her. <laughs> and I don't like that. I don't like that. That's me, but I'm becoming that well, person. At least you know that that's bad to be like that guy. <laughs> yeah. 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 He was the flattest character in WandaVision. Actually, yeah. I almost gave up on the show because his character was so bad. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, not because he was evil. The character was written very badly and acted kind of badly. Th- this is the the new head of, of S.W.O.R.D.? Yeah. Is it yeah. Hayworth? Is that his name? That sounds right. Yeah, he, he was just kind of fill in the blank, like, stereotype. And then just randomly, someone pointed out on Facebook, one of my friends, was like, yeah, why is he just all of a sudden shooting at kids? <laughs> like, how does that make any sense? I yeah. guess maybe he thought they weren't real or something. Um, that's an, another question, actually, to ask you guys. So we, I wanted to start this because you guys are the free will show, and and I was really interested in uh, the manipulation stuff. But you guys are all so uh, professors of philosophy. So we could go to other places, which is really fun. What's like, like, what's the ontology of those kids? Like... Do, are they are they persons? You think like do they have rights? What do you what do you make of Wanda's kids? Do they exist independently of her? I I don't even really know what we're supposed to think about the kids in the show. I don't know. Yeah, Matt, what do you think? Uh, I was thinking about that with with uh, the colored. Uh, what do you call vi- the other vision? Is he the colored vision? That doesn't sound right. <laughs> doesn't sound right at all. Purple vision. Um, yeah. Just vision, I vision think. number I one. I'll call yeah. it vision number one. Yeah, like he calls himself a conditional vision. Um, and so 
yeah, it's it's not clear. So I guess he's the same kind of being as the kids. Mm-hmm. Um, and it seems more like to me that maybe they're they're all three of them are just projections of Wanda that she's kind of playing out in her story. Yeah. But but Vision, it seems like he's self-conscious, right? Like it's seems not like that, which is which would make me think that he does have like existence apart from Wanda's projection. I think I think that's right, too. And he acts contrary to her wishes, unlike all of the manipulated townspeople. Yeah, that's true. But I guess if you we need a psychologist here, too. And like, yeah, maybe there's um, like self-contradiction going on that, you know, deep down she knows or her idea of vision wouldn't agree with her. And so Mm -hmm. maybe her idea of vision as he's projected out into the world. Yeah, that that was really interesting. The the conditional vision was interesting. Like, what is what does he mean by that when he said, "I'm a conditional vision"? Is there anything to that, or is that just a line that that the writers threw out? Matt thinks that it's just a line that the writers threw out. They, they were <laughs> they were trying everything when they got yeah, into metaphysics. Yeah, the, the the analogy that I came up with is it's kind of like a philosophy student who read a bunch of stuff and just threw everything they read into a paper, even though it was incoherent. <laughs> you guys have probably had a couple of papers like that. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. <laughs> well, what do you think, Taylor? I think I I think it depends on what they do with those characters, what we learn about them later. Cause mm-hmm. if they just go away when the hex goes away, I don't know that it matters so much. Maybe they weren't, they were just projections of mm-hmm. Wanda, but if they're now characters, I don't think vision will be, but, but the kids, maybe if they're characters and they have, they're self-conscious and they exist independently of Wanda, then it seems like everything that you need for personhood is there. Maybe now would be a good time to talk about instant agents. Yeah. In the free will literature, there are these beings that are created in an instant <laughs> and they're indistinguishable from a regular person. Um, so you imagine, like, I guess in literature, we have these, like Pinocchio was a, a kind of person that was created in an instant. Yeah. Um, in the Bible, Adam and Eve were created That's in an true. instant. Yeah. Um, so it's not you know, incoherent. And we say, well, this instant agent is created. And then they go out and they perform a morally significant action. Are they responsible for what they did? Because does this, does this get us into historical conditions as well? Mm -hmm. Let's go. All right. (laughs) All right. So I, I have like a separate thing that I've been working on that I've been trying to think through um, about, and, it, and it's it's in epistemology, but it's related to the historical conditions, and it's about concept uh, acquisition and just the way I think concepts work. I don't, I, I kind of, I don't know that you could be an instant agent. I don't know if it's like makes sense. I think it's like logically possible, but I got this whole weird like Donald Davidson triangulation thing in my head. So like couching that off, it's over here. Instant agent uh, Taylor, you're gonna say like they totally can. Uh, act morally right because you don't you don't buy the historical conditions yes correct well they know everyone will agree that they can act well maybe i shouldn't say that because (laughs) people will think some people will think they're metaphysically impossible but they'll go and they'll do things that are indistinguishable to us from moral actions and then you know those of us who think they're possible disagree on whether 
instant agents can be morally responsible for what they do. And I think they can be. But some historicists, some people who think moral responsibility is a historical concept will still say instant agents are morally responsible. And I, I forget your view, Matt. You, do you say they are? Yeah. Okay. So we agree. Oh, sure. on that. <laughs> okay. All right. So, so Matt, you, you, you would say they are uh, conceptually or uh, metaphysically possible and that not only are they possible, but if they go and do something good, they're, they're praiseworthy for that good act. Um, I, I, I hold a view that's kind of more, a little more nuanced, I think. So the, the very first actions that they perform, I think they'll be, they're like morally responsible agents, but they're like little, I think they're more like little kids. So they're less responsible. Um, than agents who have histories. Okay, so um, so when it comes to vision, uh, the conditional vision, this was this was confusing, but I, I think I have it right now. So um, white white vision was the actual body of vision, right? The continuous body that they put back together. I thought she jacked that and then re inhabited that, but but then it turns out you know she just like made him out of nothing. Right. So. Uh, I don't want to say colored vision, but like vision, <laughs> like conditional vision, conditional vision. Um, he was an instant agent because she made him. She didn't make him as a child and he grew up and she didn't triangulate with him to, to form concepts. He just had him. But he had the the history of real vision, who is we, we got to talk about where he is, if he's around still. But he had a history. So, like, can he really be said to be an instant agent? Does he fit with that profile? Or is this a different case because he's been given these memories that aren't actually his, but are someone else's that he's meant to be? I think he can still be an instant agent. You could have two kinds of instant agents, the the Adam and Eve kind that don't have a fake history, or you mm-hmm. could have the the instant agents that are sort of copied from real agents, normal agents. Um, so they, they think they have a history that they, in fact, lack. Okay. But both yeah, are instant. Yeah. Yeah. The, the first time I ran across instant agents... Um, in a paper, it was all it was all false. So, the instant agent was named Susie, and she had all these false memories about you know getting a pony for her birthday and you know all these other things. So, if you asked her like you know what did you do for your twelfth birthday? Oh, it was awesome. I had a I got a pony, but it was all false. Mm-hmm. Um, but in the case of conditional vision, um, whatever you want to say about him, if you ask him, well, you know do you remember that day when Thanos removed the infinity stone from your forehead? He's like, Oh yeah, totally. I remember that. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. Okay. So vision's kind of both of those, right? Like it, because Kinda, he, yeah. because he was created um, by Tony Stark. Um, oh, but he was before that, he was kind of, he, he was, was Jarvis, Jarvis, right? Yeah. yeah. But then he, Oh, that's weird. So he's, so vision as like qua vision, he was an instant agent, though. Yeah, no, I don't know, because he had that. He had the Jarvis memories too. I don't know, man. This is weird. Okay, so even does, if, even if yeah. his the sort of new implanted memories that this new uh, conditional vision has, um, even if they correspond to the real vision's past, it's still they're only quasi memories in the case of conditional vision. Yeah, because he never experienced any of that stuff. Mm-hmm. So does Arguably, that mean, I guess. okay. So, so does that mean, cause I would think maybe, um, uh, a, a fake, a false, a false past and like a, a real past that's been implanted into a new agent. I would think that would make the cases different, 
But are you saying like it doesn't matter no matter what? They're both instant agents and all instant agents rise or fall together? Yeah, the the one sort of uh, snag here is that on some views of personal identity, if there's psychological continuity, mm-hmm. especially connections of memory, then it will be the same person. I guess, I guess I was just assuming that that didn't happen in the case of um, the, the original vision and this new conditional vision, that, it, that it, there really isn't personal identity across that gap. Yeah, this brings us into the ship of Theseus. A little uh, bit, yeah. And that's one of my favorite lines. Maybe I'm stupid, so you guys could could let me know, but I've never heard it called uh, identity metaphysics like that. Um, I just it's just like this this is metaphysics. But is that a, do, do people talk like that? Do they say now now class we're going to be looking at identity metaphysics? That sounds like a Wikipedia entry. That's what I thought too. I was like, that doesn't sound natural. <laughs> it goes back to my theory about the, the student who read a bunch of stuff online. Yeah, yeah I was. I'm so glad that you guys that that you guys felt that too. Um, so. Well, where are we at, Matt? Matt, can you get us back into like the historical conversation before we get to the ship of Theseus kind of stuff? Um, I, I guess if you want to ask about the, or if we want to talk about the different kinds of views that one could hold, yeah. Um, there are people who believe that, that we call them positive historicists. Mm-hmm. So they require that you have a certain kind of history in order to be morally responsible. So Mark Fisher and John. Uh, John I said Fisher. that wrong. John Fisher and Mark Revisa, um, they hold that you have to go through this process where you see yourself as a particular kind of agent and you see like evidence that you've acted in certain kinds of ways. And that's part of you being a morally responsible agent. Mm-hmm. So an instant agent is not going to have that. So according to that view, instant agents can't be responsible until they've got they've built up some history. Yeah. Um, there's another kind of historicist view uh you could call it like a negative view that just requires that we not have a certain kind of history that includes certain kinds of manipulation or whatever. Um, And then there's a third kind where it's like a hybrid between the two, Mm -hmm. or you could call it like a conditional view where if someone has a past, then it has to be of a certain sort. But if they don't have a past, then they just have to be a, they just have to meet all the other requirements to be morally responsible, like with knowledge and control. And man, that's kind of where you find yourself, right? In that, in that third view. Yeah. I'm kind of in the middle. Yeah. Okay. And Taylor, you're not in any of those. That's right. I used to be, I used to be a negative historicist. I mean, I was motivated by cases like the Ann Beth manipulation case. It really seemed like Beth, uh, the day after she's manipulated is not morally responsible for, you know, staying late at work. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've since come around and said she is. Yeah. Can you can you just real? Are you able to explain that quickly, or um, it doesn't have yes. to be super quick? But but you sh- you still need to go read the paper. I keep trying to get you to read Parker. <laughs> I, I get my master <laughs> argument. I know. I know. Yeah. Uh, okay. So I, I start with the view that we are sometimes morally responsible for what we do, mm-hmm. and I ask, well, how does that process of being morally becoming a morally responsible agent get off the ground in the first place well if you think back in each of our histories there was a time when we weren't morally responsible for what we did when we were little kids and eventually as we came to have more control over our behavior came to understand the significance of what we were doing to understand morality we became morally responsible now Focus in on whenever, no matter what age you think this happened at in your own life, the first action for which you were morally responsible. Ask yourself this, 
Um, did you have any control over your desires, values, the things that led you to do that action that you were morally responsible for? And intuitively, no, there's nothing, at the very least, you weren't morally responsible for your constitution at that time, for your desires, your character and all that. Otherwise, you would have been yeah. responsible for something earlier in your earlier. life. Yeah. Okay. I'm so I take this as a, I mean, this is part of my view of moral responsibility in general. We can be morally responsible for something, even if we're acting um, from an entirely lucky constitution, a, a constitution we had no control over. But once you have that in mind, and I, I developed that in my dissertation as a kind of response to uh, an objection to compatibilism about determinism and responsibility, because there's this worry that this problem of constitutive luck for compatibilist views. But anyway, I, if you, if you like this idea that moral responsibility gets off the ground, despite constitutive luck, um, I, I want to say the very same reasoning applies in cases of midlife manipulation, like the Anne Beth case, Beth, when she stays late to uh, review the manuscript or whatever it is that she does, she is entirely constitutively lucky at that time because these this new character profile has been implanted in her against her will. Mm -hmm. And yet she she's doing what she wants to do. Um, you know, she, she's not being coerced. No one is holding a gun to her head and making her stay late. So all the normal time slice or structural conditions on responsibility are in place. The only thing that could undermine her responsibility is what's happened to her in her history, that her character has been covertly replaced mm -hmm. and there i see her as relevantly similar to the young kid doing the first action that they're morally responsible for so i matt kind of suggested this in his in, uh, giving his view i i like the idea that responsibility comes in degrees and when little kids do their first actions they're morally responsible for they're only a little bit responsible so i want to say the same thing for manipulated agents that they're just a little bit responsible but as long as they satisfy the time slice conditions on responsibility, I say that they are responsible. So that's the sense in which I'm not a historicist. Well, would they be a little bit? Um, so if she if she's uh, praiseworthy for her action, I forgot her name. What's the Beth, yeah? Beth, if if Beth is is praiseworthy because of of your view, is she a little bit praiseworthy? Or is she just as praiseworthy as um, Sarah or someone else who stayed late without any kind of historical? Uh, manipulation there. Right. Yeah. So I'd say she's only a little bit praiseworthy. Okay. And okay. I think that's actually, that gets the right result in most of the cases of manipulation. Unlike cases, unlike views that are, I don't know, purely structuralist views where your history doesn't matter at all for how responsible you are. Mm -hmm. I'm at least able to say, well, if Beth was manipulated into doing some really horrible thing, right. I'm going to say, well, she's only a little bit responsible. At least it's better than saying, yeah, she's just <laughs> as responsible as someone with a horrible character who made themselves into having that horrible character. Yeah. Well, Matt, I'm going to give you a chance to, to go at him real quick. But uh, before that, uh, Taylor, is this was was the dude? I keep forgetting that Beth was was the Beth case a bullet that you had to bite? Or was that like once you realize the. Uh, the, the early you know childhood responsibility then did you realize oh well the best case now i have to overturn my view of, of negative historicism or was that like something you're excited to be like let's go at this and mess with everyone's intuitions about beth here yeah i don't see it as a bullet that i've mm. had to bite in fact i think um 
if if it seems like you're biting a bullet when you say that the manipulated agent is responsible, it's because you're thinking that they're just as responsible as a non-manipulated agent. But once you have the degrees of responsibility in the picture, and we're talking about serious mitigation of responsibility mm-hmm. in these extreme manipulation cases, I don't see it as a, as a bullet anymore. Okay. Matt, what do you think, man? So the mitigation of responsibility is caused by something that happened in her past. So Taylor... I'm sorry, but your your historicist too. <laughs> I, I want to have my cake and eat it too. I want to be. I'm a I'm a history sensitive structuralist. Is I think that's what I yeah. use in the term I use in my paper. Yeah. So I'm distinguishing between whether the agent's responsible or what I I think some people call the fact of responsibility, mm-hmm. and that on the one hand, and then how responsible the agent is or their degree of responsibility on the other. And so I'm a structuralist about the fact of responsibility, but. I'm sensitive to historical stuff when it comes to degree of responsibility. So I have a question for you. Would yeah. would you so other people make distinctions between being a responsible agent and being responsible for a particular bit of behavior or action? Would you say that she's a fully responsible agent, but she's just not as responsible for her first few overt actions? I think so. I mean, even hardcore uh historicists would still want to say she's a she falls into that category of morally morally responsible agent after manipulation right or would some people want to say not yet uh yeah i'm not sure that's a good question she sort of she has all the capacities and especially the knowledge of morality that's necessary to be kind of part of the moral community yeah I, she I just does, that's enough. so for fisher and her visa she just doesn't have all the evidence to to meet that ownership requirement Right. Um, to see that she is a responsible, a fully responsible agent. So I'm not sure. Um, as far as like what I want to say to Taylor's view, I think that there's a distinction between midlife manipulation and kids who are performing their first overt actions. Mm-hmm. And this is uh, an idea that I've been thinking about for a long time, but I haven't put into a paper and tried to get published yet. Um, so, One key difference for me, at least, is that Beth has a this is going to sound like uh, ad hoc where I'm just she has a history. (laughs) (laughs) But no, she's got she's got a whole like she has invested in being a particular kind of person in a way that a child has not. So as as we um, go through our life. Uh, Robert King calls these self-forming actions. We we have choices that we have to make that set in place like the kind of person that we want to be. Like the, he calls them will-setting moments or self-forming actions. And so, w- what kind of person do I want to be? I make a choice, and that kind of sets parts of my character in the future. So I'm invested in the kind of person that I am. And Beth, before she's manipulated has all these years of becoming the kind of person that she is. Whereas the little kid um, doesn't have those kinds of concepts. uh, So they're not as invested as Beth is in the kind of person that they are. So when midlife manipulation happens, it thwarts all of these investments that we have in our, in the kind of person that we are. Um, So that, that for me, that's like a strong pull to say that, that after the manipulation, you're not responsible at all. Whereas a little kid can be responsible at least a little bit. Would, would, um, so if you were manipulated, uh, if Beth was manipulated to stay late and, and she was manipulated, uh, 
insofar as her job is concerned, would would anyone draw a distinction between, well, maybe she's not as responsible or maybe not as or responsible at all when it comes to work stuff, but she's still responsible for the other stuff, which the manipulation hasn't uh, touched. So she can still be a moral agent when it comes to loving her kids or something. Yeah, that's a good question. It depends on the details of the case. So what what kinds of beliefs and values and desires are erased and replaced by the manipulators? If it's just stuff about work, then yeah, maybe you can make that distinction. She's not responsible for working late. Um, but they didn't tinker with any of her desires about taking care of her kids. Yeah. So when she takes care of her kids, then she's responsible for that. But is that the kind of idea that you have? It, it is the idea. And I'm, I, initially I thought maybe that's the case, but then I also think we're kind of, our beliefs might be more integrated than that. And so mm-hmm. she's staying late and now she's not going to the kids' soccer game, though she would have otherwise. But mm-hmm. now she's got this new belief in here. And so it might just jack up the whole system. Yeah, there's going to be a lot of overlap, especially for something as big as work, because work is such a big part of our lives. Mm-hmm. Uh, Matt, just just real quick as a follow-up. So um, in our last conversation, you said that when it comes to uh, philosophy, your, your philosophy, you're, uh, you lean a little bit more towards uh, incompatibilism. And in your theology, you lean a little bit more towards you know d- d- determinism or compatibilism. For, for the historical uh, conditions that you affirm, is PAP part of that? Like, do you, does, the, does the growing person and all the choices that they've made to shape their character over the years, does that require uh, the ability to do otherwise or, or not necessarily? Yeah, I'm, I'm the most wishy-washy philosopher ever, I think. <laughs> um, and I tell everybody when they ask if I'm a compatibilist or libertarian, it like, depends on which side of the bed I wake up on. Mm-hmm. If I wake up on the wrong side of the bed, I'm a compatibilist. <laughs> <laughs> um, I was for a while I was convinced that that Pat was false by Frankfurt mm-hmm. cases. Mm-hmm. But there's I've read some recent stuff on on the Frankfurt cases and I'm now I'm not just not sure. So mm-hmm. Taylor Can't read and I, that stuff. Don't I know, read I know. Like <laughs> Taylor and I have friends that publish this kinds of stuff um on um whether or not Pap actually is falsified by Frankfurt cases. Mm-hmm. Um and I, I don't know how many of the details you want to go into this, but the, it, the the arguments are at least if they're not convincing, they're like making me take a step back and uh, do it. Is Pat really false? I'm not sure. <laughs> it's only because you woke up on the wrong side of the bed. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know how much detail we can go into without Taylor losing it. So. Uh, that's right. I'm going to have to sign off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, okay. So, uh, when it when it comes to, to the historical case, I just I wanted to bring it back to WandaVision a little bit. So Wanda does this thing where she goes like this behind your head and you get like a dream or a vision of something. Uh, she does this to Tony Stark and she like shows him the future. Um, it, he wouldn't act the way he did if it weren't for her doing that. And I don't I'm not really sure what what's going on there. If like her power is literally showing him a future or the future, or, you know, it's, it's, we got Molinism going on or something. I don't really know what's going on there, but I know if she didn't do that to him and like put him in that trance, then he's not uh, trying to put a metal suit around the world, right? He's not creating uh, uh, the, the robot, the bad robot. Do you guys remember that name? Who is it? Ultron. He's not creating Ultron, who's then creating Vision and, and the whole process. Does that have, can we bring that into the historical uh, consideration? So like, I think 
Taylor would say, like, if that is manipulation, which I, I think it kind of is, if she manipulated him, then he's still like more a, a, a little bit morally responsible for all the good or the bad that he's done. And Matt, would you say like, no, because that wasn't part of his history without uh, an agent like acting unnaturally? What, what, yeah. what do you think about I that? cannot remember the scene that you're talking about. Um, but for me, yeah. whether or not manipulation undermines moral responsibility depends on the details of the case. Mm-hmm. So I think that free will and moral responsibility is compatible with some kinds of manipulation. Okay. Um, yeah. So, so I don't. I don't remember that scene. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, no worries. It's it's from it's from one of the movies. It's in there somewhere. Yeah. Probably Age of Ultron. I think. Right. Yeah. To, I forget. How, I forget the details from that scene too. But um, if she's just giving him information, even if it leads to him making a certain decision, it could just be rational persuasion or something that wouldn't count as manipulation. But if she's like making him have a desire, yeah, right. She tinkers with his feelings or something. Yeah, because yeah. that's actually a really good way to think about what you should do in a case where you're undecided. Is think about how this is going to play out in the future. Right. So that's and what Jesus people helped. should do. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe she's yeah. helping him. Right, but if but if she tainted the vision, the the picture, she mm-hmm. she tainted his emotions about the picture. That would be a case of manipulation or coercion. Yeah, it's hard to say when you just see the what is she actually <laughs> doing in his head. I don't yeah, know. Right, right, right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay. Your emotions can be played with without your responsibility being undermined. See that that's weird to me, man. That seems so weird. Like it seems like if it's not your natural re- reaction, like if someone made me. So if someone made me slightly but, more irritable. But is it your natural reaction? <laughs> Wait. Hold on. If 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 someone like if someone did this behind my head and just made me more irritable that day, and then I go home and I kick my dog. And I wouldn't kick my dog if I had like I don't know degrees. I don't know if we have measurements of irritability, but like if I was too irritable degrees less i wouldn't have kicked my dog <laughs> but freaking wanda did this to my head and i was too above the the normal that i would have been in the counterfactual world and you guys would i be morally responsible for that well here's another question suppose that you gave up coffee for two weeks and yeah. it led you to be two steps more irritable and mm-hmm. then you go home and kick your dog so i why did I give up the coffee? Because I believe the the question of the case, all the you know, <laughs> uh, if I chose to give up coffee, then that everything that follows from that choice is that's on me, right? So if that you we, didn't choose it, what if there just wasn't any more coffee? Oh, okay. Then that's that's probably me too because I put myself in this position to be dependent on coffee, such that if I don't have it, I'm irritable. There's all this literature in psychology about how. Uh, our decisions are partly up to circumstantial factors, like yeah. whether you smell fresh cookies when someone asks you for a donation or that mm-hmm. sort of thing. Yeah. And I, I worry that, that uh, saying that we aren't responsible when anything kind of tugs at our emotions is going to take us mm-hmm. to the conclusion that we're actually not responsible for very much of what we do because we're constantly affected by these external conditions. Damn. Yeah. There's a really interesting view of free will called the real self view. And I guess one question would be, well, is is Wanda like changing who you are or is she just removing some barriers to you acting according to your real self? Because we we kind of build up like personas um, because we know it's appropriate to act in certain ways in certain situations and we don't act the way our real self really wants to act. Mm -hmm. Um, So 
I guess that one answer to the question would be, well, it depends on the details of the case, like philosophers always want to say. <laughs> um, but I, I tend to think of it like if in cases of irritability, that that's actually me acting in ways that I normally am able to suppress because I know it's not appropriate. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. So that, that, that view, uh, I'm vaguely familiar with it from like a couple years back, but I always think like, I don't know, you're kind of historically situated and, and it kind of depends. I don't know that there is like a real you and, and whatever, you're not like saying that you're a proponent, maybe you are or not, probably not, but like, right. It's depending on the situation. Like if I were the real me is going to act how the situation uh, warrants, I guess, you know, like, I don't know. I, I maybe I need to, to, to look into that more and get a, a real view person on here. I don't know. Um, can we jump into ship of Theseus stuff? I've been You'll just have to take my word for it that there is a response to Matt's objection to my view. I need to publish it so then Taylor can write a response to me. That's right. That's right. That's this right. is a really good response. Yeah. <laughs> I, hope I don't want to. I don't want to be responsible for ripping apart the free will show on air. Like I don't want that to be <laughs> my legacy to the world here. Um, Taylor, if you want, you can you can jump into a response. Right. We should go into the ship thesis. Okay, let's do it. Let's do it. So. Uh, this was cool. Uh, I saw it on Twitter first. Um, I think Jared Oliphant was like, yeah, they, they brought up the ship of Theseus representation matters, you know, kind of thing. He's <laughs> joking about philosophy. And then I watched it and I was super jacked for it. I was really excited. And then I saw Taylor's meme about how he gave the wrong answer. And I re reflected back and was like, dang it. He, there was no answer. Like he didn't give a, the, the a satisfying answer. So the ship of Theseus, um, for those who don't know, Theseus was a, a hero in Athens, I believe, and then he goes to Crete to fight uh, the Minotaur, and he comes back, and everyone in, in Athens is all proud of him, and so they keep his ship in the harbor as like a memorial for him, and then after the years and years and years, the planks wear away, and they're uh, one by one, they're replaced, all the planks and the, the steering wheel and everything, the sheets, everything. And then the question is, is that still the ship of Theseus? And there's there's two different ways that I've seen this uh, going through like SCP articles and stuff. And I want to consider both of them. And then we'll talk about visions, uh, understanding and stuff. But one is that the ship is in the harbor and it's gradually reconstituted. I think that case is a little bit easier to answer than like this other case of um, the ship on the journey. So on his journey, uh, Theseus's journey to Crete, he goes through all these repairs and gradually all the planks are sloughed off and they add a new one, but it's still Theseus who's manning the ship. And it's like, is that still Theseus's ship, even though it's com completely comprised of different parts from when it left and came back, there's like an ownership thing. So first let's go. Um, Taylor, can you, can you tell us like what, what did, what was the point of the ship of Theseus in WandaVision? Well, as you suggested earlier, all of the original Vision's parts were kept around by yeah. sword and put back together into white Vision. <laughs> and so now at the end of this series, we've got, we'll call him Conditional Vision, <laughs> vision who's in color, and we have white Vision. And they're, um, they're obviously not identical to each other, and yet there's disagreement about which one of them, if either, is the original Vision. Yeah. And so they ra they raise the ship of Theseus puzzle in conversation. And then, uh, yeah, I guess, 
so conditional vision asks white vision what the solution is and white vision says um i think he says at first that both of the ships are the ship of theseus and then that neither are or something like that. i think he might go neither are first maybe yeah (laughs) anyway he contradicts himself um but then and then he seems to suggest that uh, conditional vision has to be the real vision because he believes himself to be the real vision. Mm-hmm. And then c- conditional vision says, I don't believe that anymore. And then he gives white vision, the memories of the original vision. And then white vision says, I'm vision. <laughs> and I guess he seems to suggest that he really is. Cause he believes himself to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So like when I, f- okay, I didn't really pay attention the first time I watched it. I was just too, like geeked up about it. I was like, this is actually pretty epic. He's got like the voice. He's talking about identity metaphysics and that was kind of cool. <laughs> and, and then, uh, and then when I saw your meme, uh, it's the dude who's like excited. And then he's like, Oh, shocked. Yeah. And it, it was, he shocked at the wrong answer. And I thought, Oh wait, I think that might be like a dialethian answer. I think he's saying to like a literal contradiction that neither are, and both are, uh, what do you guys think? Right. What do you guys think now? Like Matt Taylor, what, what do you guys think the, the answer he's giving? Does he give an answer? <laughs> We're shrugging our shoulders yeah. for those listening to the podcast. <laughs> I mean, at, at the end, it seems like maybe we do have an answer hmm. because white vision says I'm vision and then flies off. But the way that we got there just seemed like I expected more from a supercomputer that's supposed to be smarter than people. Yeah. <laughs> that's right. Like, yeah, more clear cut reasoning to get to the answer, I guess. Yeah. Um, part part of the problem is they use the ship of Theseus, which is an inanimate object, to talk about the metaphysics of change, like uh, personal identity over time. Hmm. Um, and it doesn't exactly have a good correspondence to mm-hmm. the ship of Theseus because the ship of Theseus is not a living thing or a conscious thing. Yeah. And so it seems like most most philosophers, at least, I think, will agree that the the conditions for what makes a person the same over time is going to be different than the conditions that what makes a inanimate object the same over time. Yeah. And if you took the uh, intro to philosophy class here at TIU, where I was a GA and, and taught on puzzles, uh, do not listen to Matt because I use this example uh, for identity over time. Uh, and now I feel terrible for doing that. No, uh, <laughs> I, I it's, a, it it's was, a good warm up. It's a good yeah, warm up. It, that's how it works. Now, I want to bring that up with you guys too because you're because you're Christians. There's a, a separate uh, problem I want to bring up about identity over time. Uh, but but real quick, Taylor, what, what are your thoughts, man? What, what, was there a final solution given, a final answer given by White Vision? Yeah, I think White Vision doesn't know what to say about the uh, original Ship of Theseus puzzle, which is why he says neither and then both. I think the mm-hmm. writers are trying to tell us he, even the supercomputer can't solve this puzzle, <laughs> yeah. which yeah. is good for me as a philosopher. I mean, AI can't take That's my right. job, it looks like. Yeah, yeah. amen, dude. So, or, or at least he didn't read like Mark Sainsbury's paradoxes or something like that. Yeah, yeah right. He wasn't up to snuff yet. Right. Yeah. So I think what they do is they conflate the the ship of Theseus with the question of personal identity and then take a bizarre answer where believing yourself to be an earlier person makes you that person. Yeah. Yeah, that w- that was pretty weird. Um that was pretty weird. So so that getting into uh like personal identity stuff there's when I taught this class I'm just looking at my notes right now and there's like a there's a memory theory of personal identity and like a body theory a personal identity. There's probably a bunch more, but those are just two that I that I grabbed from SCP, which is like the philosopher's Bible. There. Mm-hmm. Um, so, 
the body theory, I wonder if vision is taking the body theory that like I am like conditional visions seem like he thought white vision was the real vision because he had the body of vision, mm-hmm. but white vision had like, but he also had like the memory theory of personal identity because he zaps his memories back. And then he's like, Oh, I'm vision. So yeah. w- was, which one do we, do we go with? Is it both? Do you think? Well, in ordinary cases of personal identity over time, when it's not a weird philosopher's thought experiment or even, you know, a Freaky Friday science fiction case, we have bodily continuity and memory or psychological continuity. And so, yeah, the question is in cases where those come apart, which which way are our intuitions pulled? But, yeah, once um, conditional vision restores white visions memories, he does have both. And so it's it, it does seem clear that he is vision. The yeah. white vision is, yeah. Yeah, yeah, right, right, right. Yeah, I caught that um, later on. So um, in in prepping for this, I was going to do a whole episode on this. I might still do it. Um, but I, I looked up uh, like diachronic and synchronic identity. I thought this is kind of interesting for um, what we were just talking about, historical conditions and stuff too. So if like, you have like diachronic, diachronic, you know, like chronos, chronos, uh, through time identity, that would be like the historical kind of condition maybe um well what's the instant agent what what was that terminology again when someone just snapped into consciousness and they're an agent we talked about earlier well, i don't know what you're asking for besides, they're called instant agents instant agent. oh it is instant okay yeah. that's what it, yeah okay so then the instant agent is like synchronic identity where it's like right at this at this moment mm-hmm. and so we're looking at different things here um this go again goes back to like the ontology of of conditional vision like um is he is he vision at all or not really like were there two visions going on right there because he's also a computer and it was kind of like they both had the same information one of them had more information than the other so like on your guys's view maybe you don't have a a super well-formed one I'm, i'm sure you probably do how do we what do we make of those two visions like it was one more real than the other and why so are we are we taking the view that vision is a person? I'm not sure. I oh 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 just in general, like in, for this discussion, because like, if if he's just a computer, yeah. I don't have any problem saying that they're like they both have the same programming or something like that. And yeah. I don't know. I think he's. I think he's supposed to be more than a computer. Yeah. But I don't. Um, he well he was was he the mind stone or the soul stone? Do you guys remember? I think. It, was it the mind stone, mind right? Yeah. Stone. If he was a soul stone, that'd be easy to say, yeah, 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 <laughs> there we go. Yeah. Uh, I'm not sure. Taylor, what do you think, man? Is he a person? I tend to think he is. Yeah. Okay. But Taylor's, I don't he know. Seems, it seems like, it seems like they want us to believe that he's a person, the, the yeah. writers do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's what makes this such a, such a great case. Yeah. Because the conditional vision has the memories. So yeah. it satisfies the memory view. White vision has the body, yeah. so he satisfies the body view. And now we've got the paradox, like, well, how do we figure out which vision is the real vision? Yeah. Yeah. But then once uh, once conditional vision restores white vision's memories, now you have two beings, the two visions in that scene, who both count as uh, earlier vision on the uh, memory or psychological continuity view. And that's that's a kind of that's an instance of a kind of case called fissioning where you have one thing Fission. that becomes Fission. two yeah yeah. 
Yeah, we could call it visioning in visioning. this case, I guess. Yeah, yeah. I knew you were going to go there. <laughs> you know me too well. Yeah. Okay. Um, dang, that is... There are cases is, of fissioning with human bodies too. So identical twins undergo oh. fissioning in utero. Yeah. Whoa. In so the first few weeks after conception. Yeah, yeah, right. So I have, I have identical twin daughters. And uh, I think the average time for fission to take place is somewhere around four to six weeks, I think, if I remember correctly. So at one point, they were a single, like, zygote um, developed along whatever you want to, all the different terminology that I forgot from anatomy class. <laughs> um, and then they split. And so, like, pro-life people want to say life begins at conception. And so if we're saying, well, my daughters began their life as a single body and then split. Yeah, dude. Holy cow. Dang it. Okay. Dang it. So we've got this problem occurs both for the, I guess my point is the the problem of fissioning occurs for both the psychological view and the body view. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Don't, don't drag us into uh, physicalism here. I know. I don't want you guys. To <laughs> I don't want to promote that here. Uh, no, that's dang. That's super interesting. I, I've never thought of that. Uh, Fission. Ah, dang it. Okay. I don't know what to do now. It's like wrecking my mind. Well, the, uh, some people want to just say, well, what's the problem in saying that both visions are the right vision? And one yeah. of the, like, a, I guess, a logical principle that we have to give up if we want to say that both visions are vision is called the transitivity of identity. Mm-hmm. Um, you come across this in math class too. Like, if A equals B and B equals C, then A equals C. Mm-hmm. So like really simple and it seems like it's got to be right. Um, but if both visions are vision, then you've got uh, conditional vision equals vision and white vision equals vision, but conditional vision does not equal white vision. Right. So we have to give up the transitivity of identity if we're going to say that they both are vision. Yeah. And we don't get to play like time travel games that the Taylor might want to do because we're they're in the same time. They're not, one's not, you know, come back in time to loop. I wonder, yeah, the transcendent, man, that's interesting. It kind of, if you do give it up, it might help us with like uh, doctrine of the Trinity because Jesus is God and and the Father is God and the Son's God or the Spirit's God. I wonder if anyone's done anything with that, but surely they have. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Uh, Taylor, man, do do you want to give up the transitivity of identity? You think do we do we have to do this with this case? No, I don't want to give it up, but the other <laughs> options are not any better. Yeah. <laughs> it's hard to know what to say. The yeah. other options that usually come up are um, you can add this uh, non-branching principle to your psychological account of identity. So mm-hmm. the idea is normally psychological continuity is enough for identity, yeah. but it's not really sufficient because if fissioning were to happen, um, neither of the the visions that fissioned off from vision would be identical to fission. But that seems ad hoc and really weird because it seems like it's really a case where you have double success. You have two, um, you know, further iterations of vision rather than just the normal one. Yeah. Um, Or or a destruction of the original one and two fake copies or something. Yeah, I think that's what you'd have to say. And that seems wrong. Um, But the other way to go is to say, well, there were actually two visions all along, even when there was just one subject of consciousness before yeah. the visioning happened. They were just, uh, 
you know, completely overlapping. That'd be like like Matt's daughters. If you said like both, they, yeah, there was two consciousness consciousnesses there, even though there was only one. Well, there uh, probably wasn't consciousness at the zygote stage. Yeah, that's probably true. Too. Not even one, probably. No consciousness. You could say there were two organisms there. There's two organisms. Yeah, just shared the same parts in those early stages. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So since having identical twins and thinking about personal identity over time, I really like the the view of overlapping identity. Mm. Uh, sometimes it's called four dimensionalism. Uh, so it's like you have two people who overlap the same physical space and then branch off. Um, and I guess with psychological branching, it would just work the same way. But with psychological, you have two overlapping psychological persons who branch. Yeah. So that's, that's really interesting. I wonder like what Brandon Rickabaugh would say about like, if you could put someone else's soul in my body as well and have two souls occupying this one body. Uh, we haven't talked about the soul view yet. Like I know so that you one mentioned is, psychological views yeah. and body views. That's like, I think one, the soul view is different. It's, it's separate from those two. It's like a yeah, third option. Right. So like the true vision was destroyed His souls up in heaven. Cause he believed in Jesus as uh, Lord <laughs> Savior and, and you got these fake ones. Yeah. Did no you problem. Get that from Disney plus. That's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> they really changed their, their tune lately. Yeah. Yeah. So the problem then also is, well, which soul view are we going to go with? Because not all soul views are equal. Mm-hmm. Just the the Christian one, the one that, <laughs> <laughs> that everyone always has believed. Uh, yeah. Augustine's or Thomas's? Yeah. Right. Well, I would I would probably go with Augustine. Um, but yeah, man, dang it! Just uh, ask Brandon Rick- Rickaball what we should. Yeah, think. that's right. And he, we'll just go with whatever he says. Yeah, I'm down with that. Yeah, I'm I'm gonna do that. Um, w- real quick before we we, we got to go here. Uh, there's the, I'm gonna go back to these two cases of the ship of Theseus. So I'll give my answer, and then maybe we can just we can hear from you guys too. I think the ship in the harbor. The the way you complicate this case is to say like. Uh, okay, the ship was in the harbor, and over like a hundred years, it started warping, and so they they changed out all the pieces. But some some nostalgic historian loves uh, Theseus, and he collected all the parts all along and put it in a museum. So now you have two ships here: one that has been gradually replaced, uh, all the pieces have been gradually replaced, still in the harbor. The other one's in the uh, museum, and he says, "No, this is the true ship. Come!" and he's charging five dollars, five dollars to come see it. Which one's the real ship? In that case, I want to say the one in the museum is the real ship. Um, do you guys agree, disagree? What do you What do you think? You want me to go? So yeah. the you think about your options. The there's these ideas that you have that are probably underlying your intuition about which ship is the real ship. Mm-hmm. Um, one is that objects tend to go where their parts go, mm-hmm. um, and if you if you think that then you're going to go with the ship in the museum um but you've got this other like kind of a principle of identity that objects can survive change mm-hmm. um and so it it seems like that one's true too yeah um so if that one's true then the ship in the harbor is the real ship so which yeah. one do you go with well so i go i go with the one i, I so can objects not survive change i think that uh... I, we might just have to buy. I, I've been meaning to read uh, Vagueness, that famous book. I forgot the author right now. Uh, and he just, there's like a Sorites paradox of like, 
at what point does it stop becoming the ship of Theseus? Is it 51%? Yeah. And there's somewhere in there, I might just bite the bullet and go like, yeah, dude, eventually, you know, 75% of the original pieces are over here in this dude's basement or uh, in the museum. That's the ship that Theseus actually rode on. And maybe like a muriologist Muriel- is like, yeah, but you know, once it's absorbed into the new ship, there's continuity still. And I don't know. The, I'm not a very the good problem is where you, you draw the line. A, I guess you mentioned vagueness because that's the problem. Mm-hmm. Um, so it seems completely arbitrary what number you pick. <laughs> so objects can survive a little bit of change. Mm-hmm. But once you get to 52 and a half percent, then it's no longer the same object. See, I like being on the other side of this. Like with my with my students, I was able to just mess with them and poke holes in all of everything <laughs> that they believe. And and they would go with that. Yeah, the fifty one percent. Like that's kind of arbitrary. You know, your your whole body changes. Seven years, all your skin. I think twelve years. Like even your bones, maybe. I looked that up. It's it's a it's a myth. It is a myth. Yeah, because I was thinking about this for the reason that we're going to come and discuss. <laughs> yeah. Personal identity, and I've always used that in class. And I'm like, oh yeah, you know, all of the cells in your body change every seven years. And so I looked it up, and they're like, nope. It's like, like 15, you have, though, right? You have neural cells that never get replaced. I've heard it's, that. It's just a really tiny subset, though. You change yeah. way more than 51% all, all your other of your cells. cells. But, yeah, I, yeah. I, but I, neural cells seem really important. Yeah, but it's, <laughs> it's all the cells in your pineal gland. That's the important one. <laughs> <laughs> Is that what Brandon told you? <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That's right. Uh, okay. So, so uh, Matt, you're not going to give us an answer of which one you think is <laughs> Are you gonna do? You, do you have an opinion on which one is the true ship? I uh, I don't know. Yeah, okay. This this problem is hard, and all of the answers seem completely crazy. Yeah. Um, Does it at least depend on which side of the bed you wake up on? No. <laughs> <laughs> In this case, no. No. Yeah. Okay. Taylor, what do you think, man? I just think that there's uh, that the ship doesn't survive in to either of the possible ships. I think it doesn't survive any change. So one screw, one screw of the original ship gets replaced. New ship. I might even be okay with saying there's not really such a thing as the ship of Theseus. There's just a bunch of parts arranged ship of Theseus wise. Yeah, dude. <laughs> I, I, I think I, I'm trying to coerce uh, Sainsbury to come on and talk about paradoxes. I think that's what he might say. I think he says ships are vague. It's just a vague thing, and we have this 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 kind of weird view. But when you try to analyze it further, you get all these problems because it's a vague thing. And maybe I don't know if that extends to all all material objects. So, like then, yeah. I'm like, I'm I'm sympathetic to that view when it comes to non living objects. Okay, so this this was Locke's view, um, and Peter Van Inwagen defends this view too. That ordinary material objects just they're they're just collections of parts, mm-hmm. and maybe we we say that that they are objects because they're it's useful to to name them certain things. Um, but they're but aggregates. You, they're, they're, they're not aggregates. Very there's no, yeah, there's yeah. no answer to the question of does this survive change because there's no thing there to survive change. Which but is when kind it comes of to intuitive, right? That's like yeah, that's why I said all the answers are crazy. <laughs> yeah. um, but when it comes to living things, living things have something that keeps that that unifies them through time. Yeah, like Locke said that they share in the same common life. Yeah. Um, is does Peter Van Emmeren's view about consciousness or is that? Trent Merrick's Merrick's uh, Merrick's. Yeah. So Trent Merrick's uh, defends a kind of view like this too, um, where it's not the life, it's the consciousness that unifies yeah. objects over time or living things over time. Yeah. Which is interesting too, because 
like you're unconscious for a while when you sleep and stuff. But maybe I'm sure he's more nuanced than that, where it's like it's that's why I always found the soul view most satisfying because it's like, yeah, I'm unconscious for a while and I don't like cease to exist. Uh, and I still continue, even though I'm not experiencing anything. There's nothing that it's like to be me maybe at that moment, but like my soul's still here. And I think it's a super easy cop out for a Christian. That's a soul, dude. Just go with it. Um, can I, I want to ask real quick about this, uh, the second case. So, um, uh, Theseus goes out to Crete. He's going to fight the Minotaur, but whatever reason he used, uh, crappy planks or something, he had to keep replacing. They keep sloughing off, but one of his biggest fans comes along with a rowboat behind him, collecting up all the pieces and reconstitutes the ship, uh, from, from the original ship. I think there, I kind of want to, I want to make it a tougher case because, now there's two ships of Theseus. Uh, again, maybe the vagueness uh, solves this already, but like, what if Theseus says, "Hey, that's my ship. Like, I bought all the all the pieces for that. I paid for that. That's mine." Is that Theseus? Does he have any right to that um, to that boat? Like, is that still his boat, the second one that was reconstituted off the original pieces? I think there the answer will just depend on convention and how we, you know how we divvy up material objects as property. But I think there's no, I mean, it's, I think it's exactly the same as the first version of the case in terms of whether the object is one or the other. Okay. So you're, you're the judge Taylor and you have to rule on this and Theseus has a claim and he's saying, yeah, I had to slough it off in my time of need or whatever. Cause I was, you know, trying to go fight this Minotaur, but I, it's still my stuff. Like you should still give that back to me. Like, I got paid for that. And that's my ship, even though, you know, I had to get rid of it. Like, are you, you're the, you're the judge. Are you saying, yes, that's give the man his ship back or no, that's a new ship and it can go to your biggest fan. Yeah. I guess I don't know the laws, but probably (laughs) if they're reasonable laws, uh, I'm going to rule against Theseus in this case. Okay. Okay. He's throwing away all the parts. That's true. It's not like he's stored them in a locker for safekeeping. So it's finders. Finders keepers is yeah. the rule of the land. In yeah. This case. kind of thing happens in the law all the time because we have vague concepts that we have to deal with. Yeah. And so politicians, legislators who make law, they just arbitrarily say, well, this is where we're going to draw. Like poverty, for instance. Poverty is a, is a vague term. Where are we going to draw the line when it comes to who gets help from the government? Well, we're going to pick a number. Mm-hmm. And if you make more than this amount, of num- this amount, this number that we pick, then you don't get as much help or any help. Mm-hmm. But that, so when we're talking about legal matters, I think we're going to have different answers to questions than when we're talking about metaphysics. Yeah. This is why we need philosopher kings like you guys. <laughs> you, you're over us. No. That's why I'm asking you. Yeah. No. You, this was your audition, you guys. Yeah. <laughs> well, I hope we failed. Good. <laughs> okay. Um, so just real quick uh, to, to sum it all up, Taylor, you're, you're saying that there is. Oh, wait, dude, hold on. Okay, your view is interesting because you said there is a continuity of visions. I want to say there isn't. I think I want to say the original vision kind of died and there wasn't like a unity of consciousness over time. And so two different visions, maybe. I think that's kind of what I'm going with. But you wanted to say there was a continuity. But then in the ship of Theseus case, there, uh, the ship doesn't even survive one screw being changed. Mm-hmm. Are you saying that because vision is uh, a conscious being maybe that's why he's uh, relevantly dissimilar yeah. 
Yeah. Well, it may be conscious or maybe that he's he counts as a living thing. Okay. Okay. The the case of machines is interesting. Even Locke, who kind of, I don't know, uh, revolutionized uh, identity metaphysics. <laughs> want to use that terminology. <laughs> uh, Locke thought that machines were relevantly similar to lives. And I think, you know, even if vision isn't conscious, he's going to be like um, a plant or something like that. And that there can be plant identity over time, on my view. There just can't be you know, inanimate object identity over time. Wait, I'm conf- okay. So if vision is not conscious, if he's not a, he's not like an organism, I guess maybe he's like a, I don't know. If- yeah, I think, I think a, a, a machine that works like vision does is relevantly similar to an organism, even if it's not organic. Yeah. Maybe like a synthetic organism. Yeah. Okay. So he can be, uh, because he is the way he is. And it's not special pleading. He is uh, con- con- contiguous. He is uh, con- yep, contiguous. He's the same thing. Continuous, continuous <laughs> and contiguous. Um, okay, but Matt, you're saying like you just don't know here? Yeah. I'm, uh, <laughs> <laughs> this, is- <laughs> oh, this is good. Uh, we we got to wrap it up because uh, one of us got to go here. But uh, you, this has been so great, you guys. Uh, the Free Will Show. Um, real quick, uh, what's going on this season? Yeah, uh, depending on when this airs, we'll probably have just this released be Monday. It. I'm so excited about this. Oh, we're, we're pumping it out quick. Um, well, we're we've just started uh, the this season that we're in is on views positions in the debate about free will and causal determinism. Mm-hmm. We started off with some incompatibilist views, uh, three different versions of libertarianism, and then a free will skeptical position. And we've just started covering different kinds of compatibilist views. So it's all about free will and the first season that we did was all about kind of basic issues in the free will debate. And now we're getting a little bit more into the nitty gritty with free will and determinism. Awesome. Dude. It's so good. I, I, your podcast is awesome. Uh, I love you dudes. Thanks for, for coming on, Matt, anything, any final words to, to leave the, the folks with? Uh, no, <laughs> I didn't wake up on the right side of the bed, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, dudes, uh, thanks so much for coming on and, and helping us think through uh, WandaVision. Taylor, thanks for making us both watch it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was Probably. fun. It turned out to be to be a pretty good time. Uh, you guys got to come back. I know it's going to happen. So um, everyone look, look out for more episodes with these two gents. Uh, that's going to have to do it for us now. This has been Parker's Pensies, and as always, all glory to God.